One pioneer recalled at the time, quote, During the years of 1868, 69, and 70, in my opinion, we suffered most from the cruelties of the Apaches, end quote. In 1869, a superintendent of Indian Affairs would say, quote, the conduct of the Indians throughout the territory during the months of April and May is in no way improved. From nearly every portion of the interior, news of depredations committed by the wild Indians of the territory continue to reach me. End quote. Though the raiding and killing had now reached a fever pitch, ask any American living in southern Arizona at the time, and they would tell you it had been like that for years. It wasn't a question of if, but when marauding Apache would strike this or that settlement, ranch, or town. And ever since the Bascom affair, nearly a decade earlier, everyone had come to know, fear, and hate the name most associated with these fearsome desert predators, Cochise. So imagine the shock that rippled across so-called civilized society in 1870 when this bloodthirsty nightmare of a savage made the most startling move of all. Most didn't believe it. It had to be a trap, or a ploy, or a scheme of some kind. And those who did believe it were obviously not prepared for it at all. So what did Cochise, the great and terrible, decide to do that shocked everyone? He declared himself ready to move permanently onto a reservation and live at peace. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 61, About Even. Welcome back, everyone. As you can tell, I did successfully run the gauntlet of planning a wedding, actually getting to the altar, moving and merging my life with my now beautiful new bride. The honeymoon was a blast, and while I can't say that I missed the schedule of putting out a weekly podcast episode for the last month and a half, I did miss the joy of reading about Arizona history and then excitingly relaying it to all of you. The good news is I'm now somewhat settled in, so it's back to real life which in my case means diving headlong into the increasingly turbulent story that is the history of Arizona. I will admit that right now I feel a little bit like the grandfather and the prince's bride who, after being interrupted, had to readjust his glasses and say, now let's see, where were we? As you might recall, we left off at the dawn of the 1870s, with the territorial capital having been successfully moved to Tucson for the moment, the city of Phoenix being founded and beginning to flourish, and with Cochise possibly maybe thinking about considering talking about peace. And it's that last point I want to turn back to. When we last saw Cochise, it was February of 1869, as he met with Captain Frank W. Perry out of Fort Goodwin so the pair could feel each other out. Remember that in a remarkable turn of events, Cochise seems to have sincerely been considering a treaty with the Americans, something brought on by the loss of so many of his warriors and being squeezed by the Americans and the suddenly feisty Mexicans. 
However, he wasn't quite convinced yet that acquiescing to the Americans was an imperative, so for now he continued to hedge his bets. And by hedge his bets, I mean the Apache kept raiding whenever they wanted because that's just how the story goes at this point. As Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney notes, Cochise's people were confined to southern Arizona due to the pressure coming out of Mexico, but they still needed to make a living, as it were. So 1869 and 1870 turned into some of the bloodiest of the entire period. Sweeney also writes that though a contemporary newspaper report said that the army was, quote, having a jolly time in sending Indians to the happy hunting ground, end quote, in fact, there was very little the army could do. The 14 military posts with their 21,000 troops were simply not enough to cover all of the needed territory and provide the level of protection that Arizona's 9,000 American inhabitants expected. Outposts were too spread out, rarely communicated or coordinated with each other, and were undermanned for the task given them. The general feeling of civilians that the army was more or less useless will come back in a big way next week when we get into the Camp Grant Massacre. Now, with all that as a backdrop, we have Cochise, who has to stay in southern Arizona, so of course Apache raiding is going to increase. Starting in the spring of 1869, the Apache took out a supply train near Camp Crittenden, while a week later they fell on Tubac, ran off with a bunch of horses, and then managed to drive off the small parties sent to retrieve the animals. The raiding and killing continued into the summer across the Sonoida and Santa Cruz Valleys. Cochise was blamed for most of it, with one person going so far as to say that he had lost 34 friends and acquaintances to the chief's marauding followers. Of course, there is no good way of knowing how much Cochise was behind all the attacks happening, though it is certain a lot can be laid at his feet. And just for those keeping track at home, it's during this wave of violence in the summer of 1869 that Elias Pennington and his son Green were killed at their ill-chosen farm along the Sonoida. Just to underscore the point that there was nowhere else to go, in August 1869, Cayetano Ozeta, the Mexican Indian fighter who had been giving the Apache a black eye in Chihuahua for the last few years, went on another campaign. Ozeta would even cross the international border into southern Arizona on his campaign, though the rancherias that he came across had already been abandoned by his wily adversary. This increased hostility in Mexico also plays a large role in the series of conflicts that would finish out the year. You see, rumors begin flittering around about plans in the works for a large organized attack on Fronteras. Apache bands from across several groups were starting to coalesce, then aim themselves toward Mexico. As fate would have it, though, this group would never get south of the border. In early October, they were in the Dragoon Mountains with plans to head further south, then east to the Chiricahuas to pick up more warriors before ultimately descending on Chihuahua. But plans quickly changed when on October 5th, a scout spied a small party crossing the Sulphur Springs Valley. This low-hanging fruit was too tempting not to pluck, so a trap was laid. 
Cochise secreted some men in a small gully along the stage road near a place called Dragoon Springs, just east of a station. The six-man American party, led by John Finkelstone, who owned the mine at Apache Pass, didn't ever see the ambush coming. As their stage approached, the Apaches sprang out of the grass and soapweed to pepper it with bullets and arrows, which killed the driver and three soldiers on the stage in one swift blow. The stage then managed to swing around to try and escape, but there encountered more Apache on horseback, who took out Stone and the remaining soldier on board. This attack occurred over the course of a few minutes and was so much of a surprise that Stone and the others were only able to fire off six rounds before meeting their ends. The next day, Cochise and his warriors struck again nearby, running off 250 cattle owned by a Texas train heading toward California. It definitely seems that the Apache decided attacking Fronteras could wait. As you might imagine, these attacks upset the locals greatly, and several army officers, including Lieutenant William Henry Winters at Fort Bowie, rode off in pursuit. It didn't help matters any that Winters was a personal friend of Stone and was enraged by his killing. Riding out as fast as he could with a group of 25 men and a guide named Merigildo Grijalva, Winters was able to find Cochise's trail heading toward the Chiricahua Mountains. So early on October 8th, just shy of three days since the killing of Stone and two days since hijacking the cattle, Winters and his troops came upon the Apache rearguard and opened fire. It didn't matter that they were outnumbered two or three to one, or that they had just marched 22 hours straight without sleep. These soldiers were ready to take the fight to Cochise. Winters tried to keep the Apache from reaching the mountains, but Cochise led several assaults to give his people time to reach the high ground. The fighting lasted 90 minutes, with Cochise's diversion working and his people making it into the foothills. The American accounts of this battle have Cochise riding a gray horse and shouting orders to his men while charging the Americans. And despite everyone knowing which one was Cochise and that he was literally throwing himself at them, Every effort to shoot him failed. Grijalva would say Cochise's survival was due to his ability on a horse, and that every time he had the chief in his gun sights, Cochise would slip over the side of the horse by hanging on to the animal's neck. However, the attack was a victory for Winters, who managed to recover all the animals the Apache had stolen, with only two Americans wounded. Cochise wasn't quite out of the woods yet either, with Mexico effectively closed to him, he chose to stay in the Chiricahuas, which is where he was on October 18th, when more U.S. troops under Captain Reuben Bernard found him. Bernard and his men were on the eastern side of the mountains, when Grijalva again found Cochise's trail and led the men into a spot believed to be modern Tex Canyon. Now, Bernard had been at Apache Pass during the Bascom Affair as a Dragoon Sergeant more than eight years beforehand, so his eagerness to catch or kill Cochise is highly understandable. Bernard found Cochise and his people situated on top of a high mesa and were able to repulse any attempt to dislodge them. Though forced to retreat, Bernard believed his men had killed 18 Apache warriors, which was enough to teach them a lesson. That is, until he could return with more men to finish the job properly. And he would return the following week, and, 
and Cochise, probably with nowhere else to go, was still there. Another skirmish ensued before Cochise withdrew even further into the rugged wilderness. That night, Apache scouts would come into Bernard's camp and again float the idea of some sort of peace, inquiring what terms could be worked out. Bernard snottily replied that if the Apache wanted peace, they had to come and just accept whatever terms he would give. Believe it or not, Cochise rejected this offer out of hand. In the meantime, soldiers put on high alert by Winters and others, began flocking to the area, ready to capture the great boogeymen of the Apache. By October 30th, Bernard now had more than 115 fighting men, but Cochise prudently withdrew over some incredibly rugged territory that eventually exasperated his erstwhile foes, who chose to withdraw. Later on, Cochise would remark that he learned from the killing of Stone and the other stage riders not to hit government mail coaches anymore because, quote, all the soldiers would be ordered out to avenge any deaths, end quote. Following these engagements, Cochise withdrew far from traditional Chiricahuan territory, probably up into what is today Gila County. Camping alongside a tributary of the Gila River, but continuing to move about, his exact location was unknown to the U.S. soldiers hunting him. But in the spring and summer of 1870, the Apache would be back in a big way, raiding, killing, and plundering across southern Arizona. Cochise was said to have even dipped down into Sonora again. In fact, he was erroneously reported to have died during the summer of 1870 down in Mexico, leading the Arizonian newspaper in Tucson to print, quote, The worst Indian who ever strung a bow or pulled a trigger is defunct. End quote. Except, yeah, Cochise isn't dead. But he was a changed man since starting out his crusade against the Americans nearly a decade beforehand. He had now been hounded by Americans and Mexicans, his numbers dwindling, and his taste for war slowly subsiding. All the fighting and killing had taken their toll, and the great chief had grown wary of it. So, in early August 1870, a messenger rode into Camp Mogollon, which sat on the east fork of the White River, and would later be renamed Fort Apache, the eponym for both the nearby community and today's Fort Apache Indian Reservation. Sweeney writes that the messenger may have been none other than Dos Tese, Cochise's wife and the daughter of Mangas Coloradas, who once upon a time had been one of the hostages taken during the Bascom Affair. Those Tesse, or whomever this woman was, met with Major John Green and said that Cochise was tired of war and willing to come and meet with Green personally to talk terms. A stunned Green sent off letters to his superiors asking for instructions, but when none came, he agreed to meet with Cochise. So on August 30th, 1870, just as he had a year and a half earlier, Cochise sat down with an army officer to talk terms. Sweeney notes that the choice of Camp Mogollon tells us a lot about Cochise's headspace. Fort Bowie would have been his people's traditional backyard, but fearing everything he had done in the last nine years, Cochise felt that he probably couldn't show his face there without dire consequences. You know, he would become one more Apache leader who was killed while trying to escape. Fort Goodwin along the Gila River, east of modern Globe, was another possibility, but Cochise considered it an unhealthy place to live, 
in addition to also fearing that the Americans would simply lynch him. But distant Camp Mogollon was a place where his notoriety wouldn't end up getting him killed. There are at least three accounts of this meeting, which happened just outside of the post, that were published shortly after. One comes from an eyewitness account, while the other two were written by none other than Sylvester Mowry, still about a year away from his death in London. The first letter is light on details, other than to say that he was interested in peace and wanted to put an end to hostilities. Yet, in typical Cochise fashion, he also remarked how badly he'd been treated at Fort Bowie in the past, but in his opinion, quote, he has killed about as many as he has lost, and now that he is about even, end quote. Maori recounts Green's perspective, saying mostly the same thing, but added that he wanted to live along the Bonito River, where he would protect the road from Fort Bowie to the San Pedro. Cochise is also recorded as saying that he had influence among the Penal Apache as well, and that he may be able to get them to settle down for a peace. And then we come to Maori's second account of the meeting, which he claimed to have received from the Western Apache. According to this telling, Cochise rode into camp with 12 warriors, ostentatiously displaying ivory-handled revolvers and wearing a gold chain that had belonged to Stone, the mine owner he had killed the previous October. Furthermore, the chief is said to have been so insolent that the interpreter was nervous to translate the conversation. Here, Cochise is reported as having insulted the American troops and said he could go on killing as much as he liked. Now, Sweeney says that this last version contradicting as it does the other eyewitness accounts, seems more like the typical propaganda Americans expected from bloodthirsty Apache. Elements of it may be true. Cochise may have been wearing the gold chain and wouldn't be out of character for him to carry revolvers, seeing as he didn't trust Americans as far as he could throw them. But the great chief was legitimately tired of war. He wasn't looking to stir up another fight. Green didn't try to detain Cochise in any way, and at the end of their meeting, he simply rode off. Cochise wasn't entirely comfortable in western Apache territory and returned home to his beloved Chiricahua Mountains. I will point out that Green was raked across the coals in the local press because he did not try to take Cochise into custody. But the Major realized that the chief had been burned too many times before and that if he had tried to be duplicitous, it would surely have backfired. Back in his own country, Cochise began to talk and deliberate about where, if anywhere, to take his people. He rejected staying in the White Mountains with the Western Apache, but fortunately that wasn't his only option. Remember that, though he wielded great influence, Cochise was only strictly the leader of one band of the Chiricahua Apache, the Chirconans. Meanwhile, the Chehenis, under other leaders, including a son of Mangas Coloradas, had asked for peace and a reservation at Cañada Alamosa, which was in New Mexico, southwest of Socorro. Fortunately, an Indian agent who was both honest and competent had been appointed to handle this, which was something of a rarity. Although the Chihenis wouldn't receive what they actually wanted, to be settled on a reservation in their own traditional territory with clothing and food provided, the peace was tempting enough that Cochise sent word to them that he was also interested in joining in, if it worked out. 
This possibility thrilled the Indian agent, writing to his superiors that Cochise, quote, the most daring robber and bloodthirsty of the Apaches, end quote, was willing to come in if he could be assured that there would be no treachery. Of course, the Indian agent in question, First Lieutenant Charles Drew, was facing multiple uphill battles. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, notoriously corrupt and short of everything, could not possibly keep up with what Drew was requesting. More importantly, they couldn't keep up with what was needed to ensure a long-lasting stable peace. When it came to the actual needed supplies, blankets, clothes, food, those sort of things, Drew was on his own. Secondly, he was dealing with the fact that, quite frankly, very few Americans living in the territory were in favor of actually making peace with Cochise. We are going to delve much more into this particular issue next week, as it is a prime motivator behind the Camp Grant massacre. But needless to say, while Drew and others like him spoke of peace, people like William S. Owry in Tucson wanted nothing more than to make good Indians out of every Apache there. And finally, Drew actually had to sidestep a smear campaign against him by a couple of frontiersmen with their own economic ambitions for the newly settled Apache. One of these was none other than Thomas Jonathan Jeffords, who would strike up a fast friendship with Cochise, something we'll cover in a future episode. Though he would get out from under these unfounded accusations, Drew did not live much longer, as he actually would die of thirst after becoming lost in the Mogollon Mountains while scouting for hostile Mescalero Apache. Still, the peace now had some legs under it, and Cochise actually came into Cañada Alamosa for a large meeting of various Apache bands on October 20th, 1870. During this council, we see the same thing as at the previous peace talks. Cochise was clearly tired of war and wanted peace, if the Americans would keep their word. One problem during these talks was that the Indian agents left him with the impression that he would be able to designate where his people's reservation would be. Indeed, the report that came out of this meeting was to set up six reservations across eastern Arizona and western New Mexico. As you might have noticed, that's not quite the case today, so yeah, expect that wrinkle to pop up again. For his part, Cochise actually stayed at Cañada Alamosa for a while, something that made his enemies, particularly Captain Bernard at Fort Bowie, pace back and forth like Darth Maul behind the force field at the end of The Phantom Menace. Bernard was convinced that Cochise would bolt just any day now, and was waiting for the chance to pounce on his foe. He even went so far as to write the commander of Fort McRae, the closest army installation to Cañada Alamosa, to remind him that he was in charge of making sure Cochise and his followers didn't murder or pillage. Surely, he said, Cochise was simply laying low and biding his time until the heat died down, and then he would find some excuse to be off again to do who knows what to who knows who. That being the case, Bernard wanted to be informed immediately if Cochise left for any reason. The irony is that by the time Bernard wrote that, Cochise had already left Cañada Alamosa. But he wasn't sneaking off to do who knows what to who knows who. Instead, he took his brother-in-law and two others to head to the Chiricahua Mountains to gather up his people and bring them into the reservation. 
So a polite letter was dispatched to Bernard saying, Oh, we're sorry, he's not here right now, but he'll be right back. Everything's fine, and he'll be on a reservation in no time. This is also the same line they were sending back to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in Washington, saying, quote, I am sure that depredations will cease in a short time. End quote. Now, to be fair, Cochise did in fact return to the reservation in December, but things quickly grew complicated. First off, we have yet another change of Indian agents, this time to a Presbyterian layman who most people agreed was totally unqualified for the task. Even if he was totally qualified, the fact that he was just some new guy that Cochise didn't know and therefore didn't trust was destabilizing enough. Then the federal government decided that the Apaches shouldn't stay at Cañada Alamosa, but should instead be sent to live east of the Rio Grande to live with the Mescaleros, something that the majority did not want. And, oh, by the way, here we run into the shortage of pretty much everything again. Combine these three factors, and by the end of 1870, the agent is asking the other Apache leaders about Cochise's whereabouts, only to be told that, oh yeah, um, he went off with his guys, but we're sure he'll be right back. In reality, the chief had determined that he would not stay at the reservation until things stabilized, and he was given assurances that he would not be deported further east. So, once again, taking those who'd come with him, he decamped for southern Arizona. Meanwhile, the poor Indian agent was assuring his superiors that Cochise would definitely come in, any day now, in fact, while at the same time doing his best to convince the rest of the Apaches to relocate east of the Rio Grande. But even he knew it was a tall order, so it was no surprise when the idea was soundly rejected. So, now here we are at the beginning of 1871, two years after his initial peace feelers, and Cochise was this close to actually settling down, if U.S. policy could have been just the slightest bit accommodating. Instead, he remained on the outside looking in, tired of war, but ready to keep fighting if that meant his people's survival. And that's where we're going to leave him this week mainly because it's now early 1871, and we need to turn our attention away from the Chiricahua Apache and toward the Pinal and Aravaipa Apache. Because while Cochise was considering making peace with the American government, the American citizenry living in Tucson had anything but peace with the Apache on their minds. The result will be one of the most infamous incidents in Arizona history, as a group of vigilantes will decide to avenge Apache raiding by falling upon a newly established reservation and killing nearly 150 men, women, and children. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.